I tell people, get to the good stuff. There is no time for the preamble to warm up. Let me take you back to the beginning. You start with the most important point for a specific audience. And then on the follow-up, you can get to the backstory, but you got to get to the headline much more quickly than we used to believe because everybody is doing something else at the same time. In fact, I would say the podcast surge is directly related to the fact that you can do something else at the same time, even if it's falling asleep. But that's the thing is we're in competition. I think you have to acknowledge that our audience is distracted. So let's make it about them. Hello and welcome. I'm Eric Corum and you're listening to the Blueprint Podcast, where we explore the journey of high performance by learning from the struggles and triumphs of some of the most interesting people in the world. Kevin Sullivan is a communications strategist who has previously served as the White House Communications Director and is a Senior Vice President for Corporation Communications with NBC Universal. Let me tell you, you are in for a treat today because in this episode, we discuss the art of capturing attention with simple and targeted messaging. And Kevin gets to the core of how to break through the noise and connect with your audience. In addition, Kevin reveals the similarities of the high-performance teams he's served on, from the Dallas Mavericks to the White House. If you find today's podcast to be valuable, please subscribe and share it with your friends. And leave us a review at ratethispodcast.com forward slash blueprint. That's ratethispodcast.com forward slash blueprint. And now it's time to lean in and learn from the best. Well, good morning, Kevin. Glad to have you on. Thanks for having me, Eric. Looking forward to it. Absolutely. First of all, I love your new book. Super engaging. It reads like a novel, but you have so much really great insight in there. But there's a story in there I'd like to start with this morning. And it's in the introduction of the book. And you're talking about how you've just been promoted to VP of Corporate Communications and Media Relations for NBC Universal. And then you get a call. Like, here you are. You've kind of like, you're climbing the ladder. And then you get a call that would basically change everything. Can you talk about that? Yeah, just the way life works out. I was working in corporate communications at NBC Universal after a career in sports communications. So I kind of hopped the fence to the corporate side. And this was a big-time job is the way I looked at it. And I remember, you know, whole new vistas were being opened up to me. And I remember my wife and I were invited to attend the world premiere of the movie, The Interpreter, starring okay. Sean Penn and Nicole Kidman. We're at this, at this function. It was part of the Tribeca Film Festival. Robert De Niro was speaking. Sean and Nicole are sitting in front of us. And I nudged my wife, Joanne, and said, stick with me, baby. This is how it's going to be. <laughs> <laughs> you know, movie premieres and and red carpets and the life of uh, you know a corporate media executive. And a short time after that, uh, I got a. It was in January of 2005. A few months into that job, uh, President Bush, of course, just beginning his second term. Just to set the timeline, I'm riding the train one morning from our house in in uh, Westchester into Grand Central Terminal to go to, to go to 30 Rock for my job in, at NBC Universal. And on this one morning riding the train, I had an email from a guy named Tom Luce, who I had known through the Dallas Mavericks when I worked there. And his, his question to me was, Tom's a very efficient guy. And he had one question, would you be interested in a senior communications position with the administration in Washington? And I wrote back to him and I said, you mean the Wizards? <laughs> and I knew that it had something to do with the Bush administration because yeah. he was a public education reform advocate as kind of his life's work. So I figured it had something to do with education. And I also knew there were no adjectives in the English language to describe how little interest I had in going from the Tribeca Film Festival and, you know, the, hanging out with Robert De Niro and Sean Penn and Nicole Kidman to whatever was going on at the U.S. Department of Education. Yeah, you but didn't put respect, that in the book. You didn't put the adjectives part. <laughs> no, I, 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 wanted, uh, I, I wanted no part of it. But I, I obviously, I have enormous respect for Tom, who, is, who really is, is a, a, a very valued mentor to me personally and has been for, for a long time since I met him in 1997 when Ross Perot Jr., who he represented, bought the Mavericks. So this mm. was 
before Mark Cuban on the Mavericks. And so I just thought, well, I have to listen because it's time, but I'm not doing this. Whatever this is, I'm not doing it. And he, he told me I was going to get a call from a woman named Margaret Spellings, who I had never heard of. He told me she had been the domestic policy advisor in the first term, which I figured was kind of like what Josh Lyman did on the TV show, The West Wing, which I loved. And that she was about to be sworn in as the new secretary of education. He said, just listen to her. And sure enough, you know, she did call uh, not long after that, based on Tom kind of vouching for me. And this is another, this is from the what not to do portion of our program. <laughs> My opening comment to Margaret Spellings, I had a Googler while she was on hold. I, I, I was not prepared for this, even though I should have been. And I said, my opening line, I congratulated her on being sworn in. And I said, Madam Secretary, you got the wrong guy. Wow. I'll help you any way I can. I'm honored that you called. But I don't know anything about any of this, politics, government, education, policy. And she said, I don't need a policy expert. I need a communications expert. Will you at least meet me for lunch? And of course, nobody in the president's cabinet had ever invited me to lunch before. And again, I was really thrilled that she wanted to talk to me. So I, I said, sure. And I also figured, you know, 50-50 shot this lunch, you know, even happens because she's busy. And, and then, of course, 20 minutes later, you know, I had a call asking if I could be in Washington in, in a few days. And on the first Saturday of February in 2005, I flew to Washington from New York that morning. I remember trudging across the parking lot at LaGuardia saying out loud, what a waste of time this is going to be. I could have slept in today. It was freezing yeah. cold. And I went into it really with with not a great attitude, you know, looking back on it, honestly. But when I met with her, we sat down at the Majestic Cafe in Old Town, Alexandria, and she looked at me over her menu. We hadn't even ordered yet. And she she just said, I don't know what you'll do after NBC, but this will be the most important thing you've done so far. I'm putting a team together. It's going to be great. The work is really important. We don't have a lot of time. It's going to be great for your family. You're going to love the president. And I won't make a move without you. When it comes to message, communication strategy, you will always be in the room. What do you mm. say? And I, we, I was thinking of the grilled chicken salad. <laughs> but I was aware almost instantly that I was being asked to serve. And I knew because I had not worked on the campaign and had this non-traditional background. Remember, it was not that many months before this, I was working on sports properties at, at NBC. And, and I knew they weren't going to ask more than once. Right. That this was a lightning bolt kind of a deal. I love the gleam in her eye, the sense of purpose, the sense of mission. I love what I was doing at NBC Universal, and I was learning a ton. And the leadership there was great. The team was, was great. But on some level, I knew that it, it wasn't really important beyond the, how important it is to provide entertainment for people. So, so that's what happened. I walked out of the restaurant, called my wife and I said, you know, I think we got a little bit of a situation here and she was all for it. And I slow played it as long as I could. Well, I was you know, thinking, what am I going to tell the leadership at NBC universal who took a chance on the sports guy and put me in this big corporate job after the merger, you know, between NBC and universal, the company had doubled in size you know, theme parks. It was a huge job. It was a great team. And so that's where I, I had some agonizing moments, but ultimately made the leap. And uh, of course, I'm glad I did. Let me ask you this. You get a really good paying corporate job. You mentioned in the book, you, now you're getting an annual bonus. You know, it's not like life changing, but it's still $25,000. And now you're going to go take a job in serving in the government. It's not going to be a lot of money. Like, these are also decisions you have to wrestle with. And it's not cheap to live in that area. So how did you manage that one? Well, the, the, the first part is, you know, that my wife was all for it and was, is an extraordinary person. And, you know, this is sort of a, a lesson I always share with young people. Surround yourself with, with good people and people who you know have your best interests at heart. And, of course, she, she did. And we sat down at the dining room table one night with the, the proverbial yellow legal pad and a pen. And we gamed it out. And it was more than a 50% cut in pay. And it was a temporary job. I was going to be 50 years old and looking for a job just like the one I had at NBC Universal. So it was very scary. But we made, you know, we made all the decisions along the way to 
cut back on certain things and change our lifestyle a little bit. And we lived a little farther out and, you know, we did certain things to make it work and it was all, all worthwhile. Mm. So you, you bargain like, Hey, brings you in. You're now working in the government and then you have this opportunity to move up and you get this call to meet with the president of the United States. First of all, my heart was racing a little bit and thinking about some of the big interviews that I've been on, like it didn't get any bigger than this one. First of all, how did you prepare for this? Because you pulled out some one-liners that they were magic. So can you talk about that? Yeah, I had eight interviews or nine maybe before the interview with the president. And oh, wow. the, the very first one was with Dan Bartlett. And he said to me that the interview eventually as a prep for the interview with the president, Dan told me the interview will be personal in nature. He's not going to be asking about communications tactics and strategy. He's going to want to get to know you. He's a, he operates on feel and he, you know, chemistry is important. And so don't worry about it. Just go in there and be yourself kind of thing. I'm like, easy for you to say. And, and, and it's funny, the way I prepared was I, I knew that my sports background would be a good connector. But I also didn't want to come across like some guy that was in a bunch of fantasy leagues and had nothing else to offer. Right. So I, I just thought about how could I use the sports connection to pay off here, to, to make a connection with the president of the United States, who I didn't know. People think I knew him or assume I knew him from Dallas, my time with the Mavericks, or from Margaret Spellings. I had met him in a photo line, and that was it. We had no, mm -hmm. no relationship. And I was uh, the funny thing about it is – President Bush is notoriously on time, and on time is early. Mm. Now, you've seen that in the Presidential Leadership Scholars Program. It is an efficient operation, yes. and, and it runs on time. And so I got there really early. Well, I'm waiting in the lobby of the West Wing, nervous, you know, pacing around, but I, I wanted to be really early. And as it turns out, President Bush was on time, but the president of the Republic of Georgia was visiting that day and he was late. Mm. And so, so you've got this world leader who's behind schedule. And so everything was kind of held up. So I probably had an hour and a half in the lobby to kind of agonize and hand ring and, you know, just think about this over and over again. And I did have a strategy about the sports thing that sort of came to me in that time of waiting and as it turned out, President Bush played right into my, my game plan. <laughs> uh, ultimately, uh, David Scherzer walks out and, and says, he's ready for you, walks me in. I, I walk into the Oval Office for the first time. I felt like I was walking onto a movie set. It seemed, it seemed bright. I said, sir, it's an honor to be here. He said, yeah, it is. Take a look around. Oval <laughs> Office, isn't this cool? It's an honor for me to be here, too. And immediately wow. he put me at ease, which is what he does. And sometimes people make fun of him for that. And just for the record, he doesn't care. He would rather put the person at ease or use that moment of personal diplomacy yeah. sometimes on the world stage where he'll do that thing to make a, a connection. And we sat down and his first question to me was, I know you're at education with Margaret. I know you worked at NBC. I know you worked for the Mavericks, but where are you from? Hmm. And I said, Chicago, sir, White Sox, not Cubs which was my plan. And, uh, I love and it. he laughed and he kind of, you know, he looked at Bartlett and said, Hey, we got a baseball fan. And I, and that was phase two when I said, well, as a matter of fact, sir, until this moment, aside from the birth of my kids and all that stuff, being at game two of the 2005 world series where Pinsednik hit the walk-off Homer until this moment, that was the greatest moment of my life. And wow. it really is an honor to be here. And so we started by talking about baseball and it kind of went from there and he wanted to know about my family and, and, and so on and so forth. And, uh, and at a certain point in the interview, he said, if this was a test, you passed. And I began to lose all, all feeling, you know, in my, in my body. Cause I thought maybe I'm going to actually get this job. And it was Did you really, cry? Uh, Did you cry? I didn't cry, I, but I, I would have been I, like, yeah, no, I, I was just like, you know, really, really, you know, I popped my fist, I think figuratively in my, yeah. in my and then I thought, now what do I do? Because now I have to rise up and actually be able to do this, this job. But yes, I, I, I had confidence that I knew I would ask questions and not act like I knew everything and, and be a part of the team. But he, he told me, you know, he emphasized team. I remember him saying, we don't there's no backbiting. 
we don't allow it, meaning on the, on the staff. And hmm. his father, President Bush 41, had kind of a infamously competitive West Wing staff. And there were some camps that had formed and some infighting. And, and he and Mrs. Bush created an environment. President George W. Bush and Mrs. Laura Bush had created an environment at the White House that didn't allow for that. And so I, I had a sense, even before I started, that it was going to be an amazing experience and a great adventure and an honor to get to do that. And it was. You mentioned President Bush's ability to put people at ease. And not all leaders do that. I mean, as a matter of fact, some of them revel in the fact that they can keep you in unease. And the world that I've been in for a very long time in coaching, that's kind of the MO. Not many of them actually welcome people in. They want you to be on edge all the time because they feel like that is the way to get people to work hard. That doesn't sound like that was the case in the White House. Correct me if I'm wrong, but it was rather like this team approach. I want to get the best out of you. You're the content expert. Can you explain that? I mean, from the PLS experience, and for those that are listening, that's presidential leadership scholars. That's the feeling that I got about that administration was- 100%. Yeah. President and Mrs. Bush are curious. They like people. Relationships are really important to them. They believe in treating people with class and dignity and respect, and that gets passed around. And the environment was, they understood on some level that everyone who worked there was making a sacrifice to be away from their families for long hours and in other ways. So, you know, in my time at NBC, which was a great, you know, five and a half years, my wife was invited to two functions you know, I thought, you know, at the White House, you, you know, you, you can't bring your family to stuff. You got the Secret Service and it's the White House. And there was always, if there was an evening event, you were always allowed to bring a spouse or a parent or a sibling or, or someone close to you. And it was just that kind of environment where people were valued and trusted and respected. And, and it did get the best out of people. And I don't understand, you know, the intimidation thing or the keeping people on edge can work. And I've had that experience, too. It can work in short doses, but it can't work over long periods of time. And the loyalty in the Bush White House was two-way. I mean, it was the, the president to the staff. It was the staff to each other. And that was all. They set the tone for that and in, in ways big and small, you know, as small as I think every kid under the age of 12 got a Halloween card from the, from the White House pets and the Valentine message from Barney and Miss Beasley, the their dogs, you know, and those little touches were were regular occurrences for the for the senior staff, and that was that was all part of creating this environment where we felt appreciated and, and, and valued. So, on this podcast, we talk a lot about high performance, and we talk about it in a lot of different ways. But there's no doubt from our discussions that this was a high performing team. Why was it, besides these personal touches, what else about that environment made it such a high-performing team? Yeah, and I'm sure that I had days that weren't so high-performing. but the, We I all think, do. <laughs> yeah, I think the lessons learned is, you know, George Stephanopoulos said to me one time, when you guys have a plan, you are really good. Hmm. And so I think it was a very disciplined place. And we did have a plan most of the time. I mean, some things happen that are tough to plan for, but we, we operated on a plan. And one thing I, I would say is that the, they began at 7.30 a.m. with the senior staff meeting. In the years that I was there from 06 to 09, it was run by Chief of Staff Josh Bolton. First meeting of the day, 7.30 a.m. in the Roosevelt Room. And the first agenda item was the press secretary, Tony Snow first, and then Dana Perino were, were my two colleagues uh, you know, as White House communications director, we worked very closely with the press secretary in the press office. And and the first order of business was the press secretary saying what he or she needed that day. Here's what we're dealing with today. Here's what's in the news. Mm-hmm. And Josh Bolton made sure that Dana, for example, had everything she needed to be able to do a gaggle at 11 o'clock and face the media at 11. And so that meant that meant Josh looking to Steve Hadley as the national security advisor and saying, Steve, can you get that information to Dana by 10 o'clock? Mm-hmm. Absolutely. These meetings, by the way, were 25 or 30 minutes. We had a lot of meetings. A 45-minute meeting was about as long of a meeting as would get put on the schedule. You were expected to be efficient, 
there were many times where P- President Bush would have been given a read-ahead deck, and he would sit down and say, we can start on, on slide seven, because he knew the preamble. He knew the warm-up stuff. Mm. Let's get right to it. So we, were, we had a plan every day. We went from the 7.30 senior staff meeting, you know, press secretary went first, and then the director of legislative affairs went next. What's going on in, in, up on the Hill? What do we need to do? And so we would leave that meeting as a communications team. And this meant, you know, Mrs. Bush's communications director, the Office of Management and Budget, the speechwriters. You know, we all got together for 30 minutes and we, okay, what do we need for today? So by 8.30 in the morning, we all knew what the plan was and what everybody needed, what their assignments were. Now, the plan may get blown up 15 minutes later or disrupted would probably be a more appropriate way to say it. Mm-hmm. But, but we had a plan, you know, and I think that discipline and also the sense of purpose, you know, people were not there as a resume builder. It was, they were there because they believed in, in the cause and in President Bush and, and the principles that he stood for. And we were all pulling together in the same direction. In fact, Mike McCurry, who had been a uh, acclaimed press secretary for President Clinton, was visiting uh, one time to, to meet with Dana Perino. And I was able to get a few minutes of his time after their meeting. And we had some limited number of days left. I forget if it was a couple of months left or 45 days or something. And he, Mike McCurry said to me, take a look around. You may never again work in a professional environment where you're surrounded by rock star talent and you're A and B, you're all pulling in the same direction. And, mm. and that was really true. And I think if, to the extent it was a high performance operation, I think it was that that sense of purpose, following principles, being disciplined, you know, and having a plan to go along with that sense of, of purpose and knowing it's not about you. I think that was another thing. Nobody was really there for, for selfish reasons. Right. But yeah, it was, it was a great, it was a great team. And, and I've been fortunate to be part of great teams really everywhere that I've worked, including experience at NBC Universal and NBC Sports and the Dallas Mavericks. Yeah, you, you know, worked for a legend. In Norm Sanju for the Mavericks, correct? Yeah, we go back to uh, to you know my first job out of out of college after graduating from Purdue was with the Mavericks. I was 21. It was before the very first season, so it was a startup in every way. We had I think 15 employees or so that that first season. I remember you know my first day on the job. I worked until 11 p.m. They were going to have to bodily remove me. Yeah, I had always wanted to work in sports, and I was not going to be. Outworked, I guess. And it was only because Dave Burchett and Greg Jamison and those other original employees were also there at 11 p.m. Mm. And they kept saying, you know, you can go home. And I'm like, what am I going to do? You know, I, I, this is the greatest thing I, that I, I, you know, I got to mm. have a job in pro sports and I'm not leaving until, until you throw me out. And, but I'll t- let me talk about Norm for, for a minute yeah. because Norm as a leader is, is extremely skilled and unique. And Norm's thing, I, I would say, like a, like a, a takeaway from the, my Mavericks years in terms of high performance was setting high standards and an attitude of service. You know, that servant leadership, the heart of service was the vibe, kind of a family atmosphere. Again, we were a small outfit. The family thing doesn't always work, you know, in the corporate structure because you know, when people leave or, you know, there could be, it can feel like a betrayal. But Norman, Mr. Carter, Donald Carter was the original owner. May he rest in peace. Also mm-hmm. a, a great leader and a great person and his family, great, great people. But Norman Carroll, not unlike President and Mrs. Bush, Norman Carroll Sanju set the tone for the character of the people who were going to work there in the, in the environment and what we were going to stand for. And everybody kind of knew the Mavericks had a, there was a feel to what that was like, kind of clean yeah. cut, you know, family, uh, and, and very much customer service. And that meant whether you were a, a one-time purchaser of group tickets or a long-time season ticket holder or somebody who walked up and bought a ticket at the box office or a corporate sponsor or just somebody at a game who had a Coke spilled on them, you were going to have somebody there to help clean that up mm. in a hurry. And I, I was able to take that, that attitude of service, I think, and just watching Norm push that down through the organization and apply that to the media. In fact, my job with the Mavericks, you know, you know at first, we, you know, we called it public relations, but a couple of years in, it was media services. So we mm. embedded that notion of service and everything. And I think that's really 
among other things, that's one of the things I, I, from a high performance standpoint that drove the success uh, of that operation. And that organization was successful even in years when the team wasn't, which is a hallmark to Norm's leadership. Yeah, and they were successful as an organization quick. They got to the playoffs pretty fast out yeah, the gate. Fourth year, it was it was built methodically with a purpose, with a blueprint through the draft. Mm-hmm. And and uh, yeah, that was uh, also an amazing uh, you know experience to be a part of. Absolutely, we had Scott on previously, and he talked about that uh, attitude of servant leadership, and also how servant leadership is sometimes making tough decisions for the organization and in people's best interest, even when they don't feel like it's in their best interest at the time. And, uh, but the way that they did it and I, I, I grew up, I mean, you know, my story, my dad would do like the, the Mavericks banquets. And so like in the eighties, like Roy Tarpley and I'd hang around and, but you always had this feeling that you belong there. And, and I remember Mr. Sanju, he's a big man, very tall, but he always made you feel comfortable and welcome. And that's something that I really admire about that family is that they were never too big for anybody. And no, absolutely. It's a great, great, great family. Uh, Lynn and David as well as Scott. And, and uh, you know, they really had an incredible impact on Dallas. And sometimes I think Norm you know, hasn't gotten the recognition. I mean, Dallas would have eventually gotten an NBA team, but I promise it would not have been in 1980. And who knows how it would have turned out without that great start that he was able to give it along with uh, the Carter family. No question. No question. Now, you you also mentioned NBC Universal. Like, what about that environment? Now, that's, a, that's like a big machine now. That's, that's, that's not a smaller outfit. Yeah, that was, you know, and, and one other quick point on going from Dallas to NBC Sports. Yeah. They had interviewed, I think, five or six people for the job heading up communications at NBC Sports before they got to me. And I had been recommended by a couple of people, uh, primarily connected with the NBA, which in those days was on, on NBC, who knew me from, from the Mavericks. And I remember my wife telling me, Joe, saying, you know, this could be like grad school for you. It was a national job. The problem was the timing was horrible. We had just spent every penny we had renovating a house in Lake Highlands. Oh. Uh, but I knew on some level that this was a, a major opportunity. And I shouldn't let the short-term inconvenience, you know, limit the long-term possibility here. And again, that's being surrounded by people who, you know, care about you and your best interests and our family. And after a little bit of early reluctance, you know, she said to me, you can do this, let's, you know, go for it. And, and the bottom line is, you know, we, we, we moved into that house in Lake Highlands after the renovation and 11 weeks later, there was a for sale sign in the yard. So that was another another one of those jump off a cliff kind of. That has got to be a little bit like, oh my goodness, we just did all of this and and here we go, we're taking off. Yeah, and you know the thing I would say first about NBC Sports in terms of high performance, uh, Dick Ebersol, kind of a famed in the media industry, a legendary figure, one of the co-creators with Lorne Michaels of Saturday Night Live. For those of us old enough to remember life before MTV, he created Friday Night Videos, which was kind of the precursor. Hmm. Uh, worked in news, sports, and entertainment, an incredible producer and executive. And he, his whole thing was on the producer side was storytelling. And as a communications hmm. person, or no matter what your job was at NBC Sports, storytelling was part of our DNA. And I learned an enormous amount from Dick. But the other thing about that high performance environment in addition to the storytelling was when things were toughest, Dick was at his best. Hmm. You know, we had the Olympics in Sydney in 2000, 20 years ago, right now we were all in Sydney Hmm. and those, the ratings were not good. It was an odd thing. Everything had to be on tape delay because of the time difference. It was weird. It was in September. The NFL was in full swing. The U S ended up winning the medal count, but there were some disappointing performances early in the games. As I recall in gymnastics, and it just didn't go well from a TV viewership standpoint. From a business standpoint, it was a runaway locomotive. Mm. But, but when things were toughest, Dick rose up in terms of helping with morale and encouraging everyone. And, and that was a great lesson to learn. And I think you know, he, he was a hard-charging guy and a demanding boss and, and all those things. But he, he did know how to, how to manage and lead that, that, that senior team there. And, and really, the not just the senior team. He was a guy way ahead of his time in terms of giving 
women opportunities to do mm. big jobs like Molly Solomon, who's now in charge of the Olympics. Oh, wow. Uh, it was, he was really just a terrific leader for a guy who was known as a producer. He was a great executive and did a lot of great things. But the storytelling thing was something there. And then after the merger with Universal, I had the opportunity, we talked about, to become an SVP at NBC Universal. And right. the thing I would take from that experience in terms of high performance was boldness. And that was what the merger with, with Universal was all about, boldness and vision. Because this was, you know, this was 2005 when the merger happened and the world of content, we could sort of see into the future a little bit. Apple had disrupted music. Yes. Everybody was studying now how is video and TV and film going to be disrupted by digital technology. NBC at the time owned by General Electric jumped in and said, let's make a play here. And the play, if you think about it, was both content and acquiring the Universal Library, and all the cable networks that, that Universal owned, like Bravo and, and USA, to marry it with what NBC already had in CNBC and MSNBC, and create this company that had both access to a content library, film studios, theme parks, but also distribution. And Bob right. Wright and Andy Falco and the team that led that merger to get to be, you know, now when the merger actually happened, I was still in sports, although I was on a communications committee and got to participate on the on the fringes mm-hmm. but then to work uh, it within the first year of this new company in corporate communications you know that bold leadership that that visionary uh, looking around corners to try to solve the next big problem so uh, so someone from the outside like apple didn't have to come in and and solve it for for us was a fascinating thing so boldness and vision would be the things i took you know from from that experience you bring up something very interesting right now is the disruption of capturing attention. Like everything is changing so rapidly right now and, and how long you have to capture, capture attention. And as an expert in communication and delivering a message with so much distraction now, I was listening to, uh, you know, who Russell Brunson is. He's like, you know, it's click funnels. And he was talking about, you know, 60 years ago, how many years ago, it was the radio. And that's where, you, you know, people started putting ads on the radio. And then it was TV. Well, now, then, then you introduced this thing called TiVo. Remember TiVo? And then that led to DVRs and people started skipping commercials. And so now the TV is like regular cable, just like the way that we grew up seeing it or is just like obsolete. Now it's like you, you on-demand watch your show. And now you have social media, which is like all these different digital channels. Like, how do you capture attention now in such a noisy environment with a message? It's number one, your message has to be simple. Okay. Number two, it's got to be targeted to an audience. It's got to be delivered with some energy and it's got to be made relatable and brought to life through storytelling. That's the package. Now, the, the way to connect, I used to say energy is the, the root of connection. Energy, likability, warmth. And I don't think that's the case anymore. I think in 2020, 21, it's empathy. And if the one thing we've learned from George, the killing of George Floyd and, and everything that's happened since then, your audience has to understand within 45 seconds that you get them. There has to be shared values, a shared insight, some common themes. And when you get up to speak in front of an audience, whether it's in person one day or on Zoom or on a podcast, your audience has to know right away, he gets me and that he's going to have something to say that's of value to me. Keep it simple because everyone's distracted. You're in direct competition. Right now, I feel like I'm in direct competition with your listeners phones. They probably have their phone in their pocket or in their hand right now. And if I'm not interesting, they're going to flip to something else because they've gotten 20 notifications and however many texts and emails and WhatsApps and Slacks and everything else in the time we've been speaking. So direct message targeted to an audience based on empathy. How do you define empathy? Like this word empathy is huge right now. How do you define empathy? Yeah, I think it's about understanding. It's I understand your experience has been different than mine. I'm going to listen and I am going to I'm going to speak to you with with an understanding as best I can based on my experience 
about what's happening in your world today. In fact, in a presentation, you know, if you're going to share an idea with a, with a group, try to use the words, the language of that group. Try to help them navigate their world. It's not about my world. It's about helping them navigate their world. And if you do those things, you will get people's attention. You know, we know from, from Amazon Web Services that 49% of our audience is going to stop reading after 111 words. And I think it's the average digital task, the attention span for the average digital task is 40 seconds. And, you know, we, we're, we're watching and listening and reading on the go. Uh, I love the, uh, there's a, a, a pop-up ad I got one day from the Washington Post. Not many people say they love pop-up ads. Keep going. I just love that one right there. <laughs> I love the message that was in it, though. It said, stop scrolling and start reading because we are a nation of Ooh. scrollers. And just think about your own experience as consumers. How many times will you scroll up on your phone in a story? You know, so I always, you know, it's, I tell people, get to the good stuff. There is no time for the preamble to warm up. Let me take you back to the beginning. You, you, you start with the most important point for a specific audience. And then on the follow-up, and, and the, you can get to the backstory, but you got to get to the headline much more quickly than we used to believe. Uh, because everybody is doing something else at the same time. In fact, I would say the podcast surge is directly related to the fact that you can do something else at the same time, even if it's falling asleep. You know, I walk. Certainly That's... working out and, yeah. and working, doing chores around the house or, or whatever it might be. But, but that's the thing is we're in competition. I think you have to acknowledge that our audience is distracted. So let's make it about them. And I think, I think you know, there's also a formula, you know, the, the, the BuzzFeed team will, will tell you that novelty is the number one element in a piece of content being shared. It's not something that's salacious or outrageous. Our brains can't resist something that is new. And then the Hollywood people will tell you that one of the reasons that sequels are so important and so successful is that it's a new take on something familiar, which, is, which our brains also uh, find appealing. Uh, and, and then there's other things, too, to help, you know, support your messages with images, uh, you know, uh, because that helps, you know, painting a picture helps make it more memorable. Storytelling is so important to retain our audience's attention because, uh, because of the empathy embedded in a story. You know, I, when I'm telling that story about how I ended up in the Bush administration, I want to bring you into that train car on the Metro North Railroad right with me, you know? So I, I always try to say one morning I was riding the train to work. Peter Goober has a great book about storytelling called Tell to Win. And he says, you know, even in business, every great story should start with once upon a time. Huh. Gary Marshall, the late, uh, the great Hollywood, you know, film and television producer said, you know, find the complexity in life, address the complexity in life, maybe with some humor, but definitely with heart which gives the heart room to grow, uh, the end. You know, it's very simple. Pixar, there's lots you can learn from Pixar about their storytelling formula because that, that is what grabs people's attention and what gets repeated and remembered and what is most persuasive are those So stories. is that hook now? I grew up as a child of the 80s. You're probably laughing. You're like, I was just getting to work in the 80s. But, you know, child of the 80s, if you wanted to be distracted, you had to turn on the TV and then mom and dad were like, uh-uh, turn it off, right? I didn't, I wasn't allowed to have video games. That's when it was like controversial. So your children have video games, right? right. And so to catch somebody's attention and to hook them, I, I, my dad every morning got the Dallas Morning News and the New York Times. And my job was to go out and pick those up in front of the house and have them ready for him to read in the morning, right? Now it's like the hook has got to be like that. Because people are doing this, that I'm scrolling so fast. Yeah. How do you hook some? Is it imagery? Is it? I mean, people do crazy stuff. They're dancing. People that normally just wouldn't dance to get attention. How can you be authentic to yourself, your brand, your company, and still hook somebody? I I believe a story is the is the best way to do it. It's got to be concise. You need mm -hmm. some details. You don't need every detail. Because and the reason storytelling is the most effective form of communication is because it paints a picture which makes it memorable and memorable. And because of the empathy element, like you can relate to that person being in that train car maybe 
with this mm-hmm. email that's going to change his life. So that's the hook. And now I have to have a lesson learned to make it valuable to you. And the lesson learned for me there was don't let the fact that it's a 50% cut and pay or it's temporarily inconvenient for your family deter you from this long-term potential great adventure. And, and I, I think can relate to that. <laughs> yeah, it's that, it's, that's right. It's that emotional component, which makes yeah. it genuine and authentic. Plus it has a lesson learned. That, that's mm-hmm. why I think what gets people. And by the way, I think one of the smartest things early, fairly early on in the pandemic was Dr. Anthony Fauci going on the PFT podcast, which is part of Barstool. Mm. Now, Dr. Fauci didn't change his personality or his message because he was now talking to the home, uh, the greatest collection probably of young men anywhere online is Barstool. Mm. He went in there as Dr. Tony Fauci and did his thing. And they treated him with respect because they knew this was an important message for their audience. So sometimes you got to go where you're, you know, you always really have to go where your audience is. But when you go to that audience, don't change. Like, don't try to be someone different based on the audience. I think that's an, an, a worthwhile point that you kind of teased out there. And that's also, that takes some confidence to not, I mean, I've been around, I, I want to bring something back from my past. I've been around young coaches that become a head coach, right? And the first thing they do is they think, okay, my mentor, or I saw winning was done this way, so now I'm going to be that way. And so they literally try to emulate that person, and then there's this, you can watch it, there's an uncomfortableness in their own skin. I'm sure you've seen this before. Oh, yeah, you have, to, you have to be yourself. Yeah. You know, when I talk about, you know, simple message targeted to an audience, delivered with some energy, brought to life, made relatable through stories, the caveat was that is it has to be authentic or it won't land. It right. won't be meaningful to people. It won't be embraced if it is not done in an authentic way. We, authenticity is really the, the whole ball game. If you're not authentic you're, and you seem phony, that, that completely undoes the empathy and breaks the connection. There is no warmth and likability for a person who seems like they're fake. You know, mm. so, so you have to, you know, and this, it takes some practice you know, it takes you, practice. Okay, explain that practice. one. Yeah. It takes practice not to be authentic. It takes practice to get comfortable being mm. authentic and being yourself and not trying to be like your mentor coach or not to, to, you know, I've seen coaches too that, you know, turn into screamers and that's not who they, who they really are. And, you know, everybody has to find their, their path and, and do it in a way that's authentic for them. I heard it once said, be brief, be bright, be gone. That's right. You know, I mentioned Tom Luce. He, he always said, uh, you know, we're talking about uh, public speaking and speech writing. And he said, remember, nobody ever heard a speaker and said, you know, that guy was great. I just wish he would have talked for 20 more minutes. <laughs> you know, so, and again, that's putting your audience first. What is most helpful to my audience? And even when we do media training and we talk about trying to control an interview or drive your messages, in this day and age, you have to be helpful to the audience. Number one, if you're not, they're going to turn tune out. And number two, the reporter or that outlet or that podcast won't invite you back or won't recommend you to others if you're robotically, you know, spouting off talking points. Yes, and you can see that right now in campaigns. Like, I don't need to watch the two candidates very much because I know pretty much what they're going to say. They'll just kind of. How do you do that in a campaign when you're having to tell the same message? Does that take a brilliant team to go, hey, you're going to Ohio. How do we craft this message for them? But also know that the whole world is watching what you're saying. Yeah, there's a there's a thing called the rule of nine, which means a neutral audience has to hear something nine times to really internalize it. Okay. Message discipline is a real thing on campaigns. I, I have not had that experience personally of working on a campaign. But I know that when the candidate thinks they're going to puke if they hear themselves say this thing one more time, it's probably just beginning to break through. So Mm. repetition of the message is important. But the key is, you know, you have to have that topper, you know, where when you're in Columbus, you add something for that local crowd. President Bush was really good at this. You know, he would always say, you know, in his acknowledgments at the top, he would always have some local color, even if it was. You know, and Mr. Mayor, fix the potholes, which always yeah. gets a laugh, you know, and 
but so you make it local, but you have the same message and the same themes that you can, you know, tell in different ways. You want different proof points, which is a third party endorser mm. or a, a data point or, or, or some other form of recognition, a story, an anecdote, so that you don't have to robotically use the same talking point over and over and over again, which an audience, the same audience will will flag but repetition is 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 good you know it does especially in our in our uh, distracted you know what the former microsoft executive linda stone and in 1998 labeled this continuous partial attention which is what she said our society would be would be in once the computing power went mobile and she predicted it in 1998 and it certainly uh, has happened and is true in a big way today so repetition is okay find different ways, including stories, to make it local and relevant to that audience. This is gold. I have taken so many notes right now. Like, I take notes on all, but I mean, I can't, I'm going to have to listen to this a lot. Yeah, this is fantastic stuff. So, in keeping with this, people have got to read your book because I read the introduction, and most of the time, I hate introductions. And it's like, I'm doing it out of discipline, right? As a matter of fact, I just want to mention this one thing, real quick side note. I listened to it. There's another podcast, Shane Parrish's podcast, The Knowledge Project. Great on mental models. He had this VC on. It was his 19th episode. And you can tell he's come a long way in five years. But this VC talked about, he reads all these books, but he goes, let's be honest. Nobody really reads the whole thing. He's like, so you can get over the not reading the whole thing guilt. But I still have that. I deal with it. It's a personal issue. But I'm reading the intro to your book. And I'm like, this is the best intro I've ever read because you hooked me. You hooked me and I was in and I, I read every stinking word of that thing. How many times, how many passes did it take for you to get to that intro? By the way, the name of the book for everybody, it's Breaking Through Communication Lessons from the Locker Room, the Boardroom, and the Oval Office. You can get it on Amazon. Where else can you get it, Kevin? Anywhere ebooks are sold. It's a, it's okay. a digital product. Yep. It actually came out a few years ago. It was, I had a great editor, a guy named David Myers, who worked with me at the White House. He was in the staff secretary's office and he pushed me. My wife pushed me. Uh, it took way longer to do than it should have. It's the hardest thing I've ever done. And it's, it really was done sort of as a friends and family project. It's primarily really? a book for communications people. But my first, my, the first chapter is kind of my story. And it's really was just to kind of put it down for my family somewhere. I've been really fortunate and blessed to be part of, it's almost obnoxious. You know, I, I always say, you know, when it comes to once in a lifetime jobs, I've had three of them. And then of course the last 11 years as a consultant, I've gotten to do all kinds of fun stuff. Yeah. And, and uh, so I've been really fortunate and there's just some, some lessons, lots of examples and case studies in there that hopefully would be useful uh, to somebody. And uh, I appreciate you uh, mentioning the book. And I, I throw some of those things out too on, on Twitter at, at K Sully with an IE on the end, if anybody mm-hmm. wants to, to uh, engage there, I'm, I, I'm, I'm uh, happy to do that too. No, you, your stuff is, is riveting. It's very engaging. And it's to the point, like just to be, just to your point of like being brief, getting the message in and getting out, like it, it didn't feel like this was a laborious text. You told me it would read fast and I'm just going through it. I'm like, this is great. As a matter of fact, our PLS book club just picked up the book. And uh, I think, I think it could almost, I know you're like, Eric, please don't make me write this again, but it could almost be repurposed for the current. I mean, just what's happened in the past three years in the digital age. And I'm sure things would have to be updated continuously, but there's so much stuff in here that could be helpful for somebody that's trying to capture attention in an authentic way. And I can understand that. My dad's an author. I wrote my dissertation and it is the hardest thing you're ever going to do. And you hate every second of it. <laughs> no, no, no question about it. And the only way, you know, it was, it was get up really early and do it in the, in the morning and I, you know, just while traveling and, and, and so on. And, but, you know, this notion of just one other point on the hooking people. Yeah. I wrote a blog post about this a while ago. But Motown, way back in the, in the 60s, had the same approach. And that's why, you know, the song Ain't Too Proud to Beg by the Temptations gets right to, I know you want to leave me. I won't sing. Hmm. But I refuse to let you go. They got you within about a second and a half. And if you look back through the Motown catalog, there were many songs that got right to it like that. And that was a Barry Gordy thing. 
So this is what I'm talking about here is not necessarily original. I picked up a lot of tips and tricks and I've tried to synthesize it for 2015, 16, 20, 21, yes. uh, and, and so on. But, but get their attention as quickly as you can. The story is a good way to do it and then make it about them and you'll do okay. And that, that's high performance uh, when you're talking about Motown. So there's, that's a good way to go. No question. So what are you excited about right now? What do you, I mean, you, you're consulting, like if we went through the list of people you've consulted with, it's pretty ridiculous. I mean, there's so many professional sports teams, but what do you, what's got your brain going right now? Yeah, I, I love the message challenge, you know, how to message a complex issue. I think right now uh, that I'm trying to spend time on the notion of earning trust through the way we communicate, you know, with the, the George Floyd killing, on Memorial Weekend, the ground shifted permanently. And I think that's a good thing. And all of us now understand in a different way what, what's happening in the, in the country and the experience that Black people have had, has, have had is different than the experience that I've had. I've tried to engage in conversations with Black colleagues to learn more about that so I can advise our clients on the best way to communicate in a way that earns trust and where you can speak directly, whether it's the black community, the brown community, you know, just avoiding euphemisms, using gender neutral language. You know, there's a whole uh, sort of new school of thought and effective communication that has evolved. You know, it started with the pandemic, unrelated to the pandemic in a different way. It accelerated uh, Memorial Weekend with the killing of George Floyd. Jacob Blake heightened it again. The Jacob Blake you know, shooting meant that the listening for understanding, we were reminded that's not enough, we need change. And so in advising clients, it's, it's how are you going to back up this, this message point? What are you going to do about it? Action, and we've talked a lot about message today, ultimately, you earn trust by paying it off, by following through with action. And so that's, where I'm, that's, that's what I'm most excited about, is trying to become smarter and, and, and grow an understanding uh, on, on the best way to communicate in, in 2020 and beyond, given what our country is going through this year. It doesn't mean anything unless you do something about it. The great thing about communication is you can get the ball rolling because sometimes you don't have the opportunity for action unless people are partnering with you and supporting you. And you are definitely, I'm going to put this out there, you're the goat when it comes to this. And uh, not even close, but (laughs) but I've I've been fortunate and I have a lot of fun and it's been real nice of you to have me on, on the blueprint. And uh, I'm grateful to you for the opportunity to talk about, uh, you know, my career and, and hopefully somebody got something helpful out of it. Absolutely. Thank you for coming on, Kevin. You're awesome. Hey, thanks, Eric. All the best to you and your uh, new adventures. Thank you, sir. Thanks for joining me today for another episode of the blueprint podcast. If you found this episode valuable, would you please help us by providing a review simply by going to ratethispodcast.com forward slash blueprint. Again, that's ratethispodcast.com forward slash blueprint. Also, if you want to stay current on everything high performance, follow me on Instagram at Eric Corum, Twitter at Eric Corum, Facebook at Eric Corum, and LinkedIn at Eric Corum.